Welcome to the Metro Church Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by this message. For more information about Metro Church, visit our website at metrochurch.org.au. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God's plan for the earth is a family. Whether you've had a great one or a I'd rather not talk about it one, when we come to Christ, when we put our trust in Jesus as our Saviour and as our eternal guide, when we do that, we become part, not just of a church, not just of a sect or a denomination or a religion called Christianity, but according to God, we become a part of something He calls family. You know, I know some of us here will have had the worst kind of family upbringings. Please don't turn off when you hear us speak about family this month. Because even if you've had a rough one, God has put you in a great one and He wants you to begin anew. I read my mother-in-law's memoirs this morning before I came to the service. I knew her to have been a Christian since a child. I knew her her father, uh, who was a Salvation Army officer. What I did not know was that the grandfather of all of them had come to Christ out of an atheist family as a, I think, a 13-year-old boy in the coal mines of England. And out of that family background of dysfunction and, and all kinds of brokenness and all kinds of behaviours that nobody here would endorse, out of all of that, one 13-year-old boy gives his life to Christ. And so now a new family line got started. We got to be a part of that on Friday and saw all the grandkids get up and talk about Jesus, talk about God's love. And I thought, what an impact one person's decision has made to all the generations. The family of the past doesn't have to be the family of the future. You can start being a part of a change right now. And so last Sunday morning, I spoke on family is where we grow up. And I've heard numerous people say to me, thank you for nailing me last Sunday. I got emails from people saying, I really didn't like your message because it really struck home. And, uh, but it's where we grow up. Last Sunday night, families where we discover our uniqueness. Tonight I'm speaking about family resilience. You build resilience in families. I haven't got the time to go into it now, but it'll be worth hearing. But this morning I want to speak to you on family is also where the image of ourselves, that is our self-image if you like, is formed and built either in a healthy or an unhealthy way. Now, some of you here, home was not the place where they told you how great you were. Home for some of you here represents all kinds of emotional and mental pain. But that maybe is some. And then there'll be others of you here who go, no, all of my life I grew up and I knew that I had a family that backed me and believed in me. Family, though, is where the image of ourselves gets formed and built. 
In Judges chapter 6, verse 12, probably one of the most, if you know the Bible a little, you'll have heard this story. It's the story of Gideon. Verse 12 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valour. But that so clashes with the image he has built up in his family world that he goes, are you kidding me? Well, he never said that. He said this. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord's with us, how come all this has happened to us? And where are all His miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. You will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Haven't I sent you? And none of this Why? Because if you've got a broken self-image, all the words of life and hope will hit you and fall to the ground. One of the prerequisites to walking with uh, uh, an expectation of good is that the image you have of you has been restored. Many of us here in this place know what it's like because we didn't start following Jesus from a place of health. We started following Jesus full of all of humanity's dysfunction and brokenness. Go around this room, go around the people watching via the YouTube channel or whatever else and discover how many of us didn't have that kind of background. We didn't grow up like that. And yet when we started to follow Christ, little bit by little bit, He began to rebuild the image of who He says we are inside of us. And the more He did that, the more every promise became ours, the more every promise became something that never slipped through our fingers, but it became something that we could grasp and lay hold of. And so even though the Lord Himself is speaking to this man. It's almost as though he can't take hold of it. Verse 15, so he said, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Now remember this, it's all family. Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Who told him that? Had they done a survey of all of that tribe of Israel? Had they gone and asked everybody, what do you think of the Gideon mob? What do you think of that family that lived down the road, the hill up behind them? Had they gone and done a survey to do that? No, just like nobody did a survey to tell you that you can't. Nobody did a survey to prove to you that you're insignificant. No one did a survey to prove to you that you're incapable of learning. No one did a survey to prove to you that your life is irrelevant. But somehow or other, many of us get to believe that even though there's no basis whatsoever in fact in it, but it's a belief. You must understand the difference between facts and belief. A belief you can change, facts you can't. The earth is round. You can believe it's flat all you like, but it's still round. Huh? It's still round. It's round whether you like it or not. There's a whole flat earth society, by the way. That is, there is one. Go Google it. There's people that still say it's absolutely flat. Well, I don't know about you. I've been up in a lot of planes. I've peered out some of those windows and there's definitely a curve. (laughs) I'm reading at the moment the history of Christopher Columbus's journeys. You go, why? Oh, I don't know. Just looked interesting. And he was told, you know, you are going to sail off the edge of the earth. But listen, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. 
He believed that God, if God sent you, God would keep you. And so off he went on this magnificent journey and of course ended up discovering what he thought was the, was the Indies, turned out to be the West Indies. All those of you from West Indies, huh? beautiful part of the world. And this, well, yes, but this guy can't receive even the promises of God because of what he's learned at home. We don't really matter. Our family, well, we're just not the ones that people look to. You know what I mean? Well, hello. I guarantee there's some of you here. And from being a child, you learned that your life, really, you were never gonna be a leader. You were never going to be an influencer. You learned that, that pretty much your role in life was to be a follower, just walk behind everyone else. And you learned that without any, Anybody sitting in a class and telling you, you're like Gideon. You just kind of absorbed it at home. My clan's the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. How do you learn that you're the least in your father's house unless your brothers and your sisters keep saying to you all the time, you're an idiot. Gee, you're a dropkick. Sorry, that was Australian for what? Idiot. A drongo, that's Australian for idiot. We've got so many great words for idiot in Australia. Some of them I can't say up here, but still, and I wouldn't say them down there either, but there you are. This guy, you've got to get this because, see, otherwise the world has appropriated self-image and said, you just got to believe in yourself. Oh, I don't think that's true. I think you've got to discover the image of God in you. I think you've got to discover something greater about you than just simply opinion or just, well, I'm just going to believe it because, you know, that's the current thing, huh? He got this poor self-image out of his whole family. Maybe the family you grew up in majored on what you couldn't do, what you never had, compared you with all the other families doing better. Well, the good news is that just as God intervened in Gideon's life, turned his image of himself and, by the way, his entire family around. Gideon was the first of his family to ever believe he could do something great. None of the rest of his family did. And yet that family becomes the leading family of the entire nation. A remarkable story. And in exactly the same way as God intervened in, in Gideon's life and family, He wants to do the same for you. Understand that there are four things in a family that either build or break down a person's image of themselves, who they believe themselves to be. Number one is how opportunity is spoken of in family. How do families speak about opportunity? In some families, opportunity is always talked about as though it's out of reach or unless you win lotto, you're never going to get there. Good things just don't happen to our kind of family. Well, there's not much point trying. Well, you probably won't succeed. I've known families like that where opportunity was spoken of as though, well, it would never really work well. For you, after all, we just don't go to university in our family. Well, we just don't run our own businesses in this family. I remember my son, maybe as a, I don't know, five or six-year-old, he was trying to do something. He was always scheming to make something. His 
Mother said he'd never owned toy guns, but he made them out of Lego. I think it was only a year or so ago that we gave away his arsenal of childhood guns. There was lots of them. I know that's not PC too bad. He made them anyway. He really didn't care about your PC-ness. Well, he doesn't today much, but anyway, there you are. And, uh, and then I caught him once making a bow and arrow out of a cardboard tube of one of those, you know, alfoil things or whatever, and, and with one of my basketball bootlaces. And he made a bow and arrow with, with a fly swat. He bent the fly swat and was shooting this cardboard tube. And he was always making up stuff like that. And anyhow, I remember that at this one point he was trying to get something done. And I said, Nathan, it just won't work. You just can't. And this little five or six-year-old looked at me and said, Dad, see, it's hard when you're a preacher because they preach back at you. He looked at me and he waved his finger. He said, Dad, you're supposed to tell me I can, not I can't. Don't clap him for that. I'll go ahead and give him a clap for that. He deserves it. He's a good man. Think about it. You're supposed to tell me I can, not I can't. Parents encourage your children to try stuff. Even if you think, well, that's silly. Let them find out for themselves as long as it's not dangerous. Now I've got to give all the qualifications. OH&S, don't do that. I didn't say you should do that. Uh, but anyway, how do you speak about opportunity in your family? Do you encourage other family members to try? Husbands, do you encourage your wife? Wives, do you encourage your husbands? Huh? We are meant to be people of dreams. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 says this. It says, God pours out His Spirit upon all flesh. And the result of that is that your young men dream dreams and your, uh, sorry, young men see visions, old men dream dreams. So if the Holy Spirit's active in a believer's life, it's not because we all lift our hands in the air and jump up and down in tune. It's not because of that. It's because there's something about our life that is dreaming about a better tomorrow. There's something about our life that believes there's more to us than what you can see right now. That's what a Holy Spirit-filled Christian is, is somebody that has got dreams funneling into their life, has got visions, things that they see that can be changed and can be different. How opportunity spoken of number two is how adversity is responded to. In your family, when stuff goes wrong, is it, ah, no, not again. Oh, I'm sick of this. Or is it, you're stronger than this. I want you to look at what your heavenly Father says about you, says about your ability when it comes to adversity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible or something that can be changed or modified, not born again of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Wow. That means that there is something supernaturally placed in you when you put your trust in Christ. When you don't just say, I'm going to follow the golden rule of the Ten Commandments, but when you as a person say, Jesus, you're the Saviour of the world, you're going to be my Saviour. When I do that, according to Scripture, something that cannot be changed comes inside of you. Something greater than all the adversity that will ever come your way comes inside of you. I do not know a Christian 
that's had an easy life. But I know lots of Christians that have had great lives. Amen. I'm not praying for an easy life. I'm praying for a great one. I'm praying that something about my life, regardless of whatever obstacle comes my way, that I'll find Jesus in there somewhere. I'll find God's hand in there somewhere and I'll keep on going. Amen. Just keep on saying, God, because you know what? If you don't quit, then the devil can't win. If you don't quit, the devil can't win. Amen. You just got to keep on going on saying, God, come on. Amen. You just got to trust God for it. Here's the third thing that builds or breaks self-image in a person's life, how opportunity is spoken on, how adversity is responded to. Number three is the word spoken over you. I decided to Google the most common nicknames people give children. These, by the way, are listed as affectionate nicknames. I say that so when you see them, you can go, are you kidding me? Well, the first one, put it up here, champ. That's a cool one, huh? Come on, champ. Come on, champ. What about the next one? Silly goose. Gets worse. Little monster. Huh? When they act like a monster, you, you, well, you prophesied it. It's your fault. Little monster. Well, what's the next one up there? Mischief. Mischief. Oh. This is my kid, mischief. The next one I had to research, Padawan. I honestly thought it was a Malaysian term or Indonesian term. I thought it was like a vegetable or something or other. It's from Star Wars. Bruce would know this. You don't. It's called the Jedi Padawan. And it means a learner. Or an apprentice. Ha. Ah, oh, little Padawan. I don't, I've never heard anyone ever say it, but this is, this is the list. Hello. How many people know Google's infallible? How many of you know Google's not infallible? The Word of God is, but it's not. Little lady. That's a cool one. Small one. Well, that's, that's yeah, not so bad. I love the last one because it's so Aussie. I don't love it. Your little ankle biter. For a start, how many people here have ever seen a child bite someone's ankle? <laughs> Come on, serious. I've never seen a kid do it yet. Huh? I've never seen a child yet. I've seen them hit you. But I've never seen a kid come on. Where did, who on earth thought that up? You got little ankle biters. <laughs> I love nicknames. I love listening to the ones people give people they love. Because if you really love them, you say nice things about them. You know, I was talking to one of my neighbours during the week who I told him I was flying off. He asked me what I was doing. I told him I was flying off. My mother-in-law was in palliative care, etc. And he goes, oh, my mother-in-law is a, I can't even say the word here because uh, not one I'd use. But I said, oh, my goodness. I said, my mother-in-law is the total opposite. She's the greatest mother-in-law a man ever got to have. I said at the funeral service, you know, we'd walk in the door and she'd say to Rhonda, go and do that, go clean that, do that. And she'd say to me, sit down, darling. Can I get you something, darling? Would you like a cup of tea? Would you like a cup of coffee? And here this 80-something-year-old lady would get up out of her restful chair, send her daughter off while her son-in-law 
So would you like a bicky with that, darling? You wonder why I love my mother-in-law? She knitted me. She said, darling, would you like a scarf? I said, yes, I would, Mary. She said, what colour would you like? I said, how about Brisbane Broncos colours? She said, what colour's that? I had to tell her. Sure enough, in the mail, I get, I get a beautiful maroon. I should just stop a minute and have a sacred moment for that colour. I can barely go on. Uh, a maroon and, and, and gold scarf comes in the mail. You know, what do you say about the people that you say you love? What do you call? I'm your bloke who called his, his wife, you know, the old. <laughs> I'm just thinking about this friend of mine who used to say to his, his, um, his wife, he'd say, Diane. Get your mother-in-law and let's get out of here. Mother-in-law, and that, what he meant was get your bag. Wasn't good. Speak words of life. Seriously, come on, parents. It's not too late to start now. Speak good words over your kids. If you have kids, if it's not, just speak good things over the people around about you. Let me tell you what God's nicknames are because I researched this. Do you know what God's nicknames for His family are? Because He's got nicknames for you. He knows your name, but He's got nicknames. Here it is. First of all, beloved. Over 100 times in the Bible, He calls you that, beloved. Next one, chosen. Over 119 times, God looks at you and says, see that? That's my chosen one. There's one that outranks all of those. It's over 200 times God looks at you and His nickname for you is blessed. Blessed. Says you're a blessed individual. They're God's nicknames for His family. So how opportunity is spoken of, how adversity is responded to, the words spoken over you, they'll build the image you have of you and God is in the business of changing it. But here's the last one. I want to spend a couple of minutes on this one. Here's the last one here that builds or breaks your image of you is how failure is treated. Let's be honest. Everybody in this room, everyone listening is going to fail. At something or other in life, you will not be the best. You may not completely succeed. There's probably no better illustration of a healthy way to treat failure than the story most people know, the parable of the prodigal son. It comes out of Luke 15. I read a book a couple of years ago called Through Peasant Eyes, written by Kenneth E. Bailey. He lived in the Middle East for over two decades, spoke Arabic, Aramaic, Hebrew and Greek fluently, of course, along with English. And in his book, That Through Present Eyes, he takes a cultural look at the parables of Luke and he explains the significance of what the prodigal did and why this story that to us just sounds like a nice dad saying, well, I hope my son comes home. He said, totally doesn't read that way in the Middle East. For a start, for a son to go to his living father and say to him, dad, I want my inheritance now. He said in the Middle East, what the boy is saying to the father's face is this, 
I wish you were dead. That's what he says after two decades living there. He says it would be such a family shame that that boy's name would no longer be spoken by anyone in the community. Such was the terrible shame of a person saying that to dad. I wish you were dead so I could get it. And I don't want to wait, so give it to me now, that they would not even mention the boy's name. He literally becomes dead to the entire community. And when he comes back, finally recognising that he would have been better off at home with his dad, the Jewish boy, feeding pigs the unclean animal, that when he comes back, he offers to work in the most menial level of employment possible. There are four levels of employees in the Middle East, apparently in the culture of the day. And valued employees, the slave who puts his ear up to the door and becomes part of the family, all the way down to the most menial level of work, even lower than the level of a slave. And the boy comes home and says, Dad, let me just be a temp worker. I'll do day by day. You don't even have to offer me a contract. Dad, just let me... Just, I'll, I'll do any job. There's no job description for that level of employee. It's a, you'll do whatever. You'll just come out with it. And that's why when we read in the Scripture in Luke 20, 15 verse 20 of what happens next, this whole context is family. How does God treat failure in the family? Come on, let's be honest. I have failed miserably at some things. I've had personal failures, failures of character, failures of finance, failures of every kind of thing probably you can imagine. And yet, how does God, oh, it used to puzzle me. I actually remember as a new Christian saying, God, why don't you punish me when I'm doing bad? I couldn't get over the fact that God, like it used to puzzle me because He'd still be close to me and I used to think, that doesn't work in any other part of my life. Every other part of my life, people freeze you out when you do wrong. I used to really just, I can still vividly remember the conversation I had with God about it. Let's read verse 20. He arose and came to his father. While he was still yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, now watch this because we're going to read some of what lays behind this just quickly. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The father, first of all, says, bring out the best robe. The word robe there is not referring to a dressing gown or a jacket or a shirt or an outfit. It literally means a stole, something you drape around someone's shoulders. And again, I didn't make this up. I just researched it. Literally, it's a stole placed on someone as a mark of dignity. The boy who's been feeding the pigs and smells of the pigs is kissed by the father 
And the father says, go put a stole. And everyone else is going like, hello? Put a stole around his shoulders. The ring on his finger was not a ring that symbolised some kind of hierarchical authority. Again, it literally means a ring you give someone as a sign of favour. You know, when a man or a woman get engaged, they give each other often a ring, don't they? You get married, you give each other a ring. What is it? It's a sign of belonging. It's a sign of favour on your life. This person above all others, I give this ring to. We've all been there, seen it. Puts the shoes on his feet. This is what I want you to get out of this. Not one of the Father's gifts are about function. Nothing the Father gives him. Out of all the gifts he gives, this boy who's failed so miserably, not one of them are about earning his way back. He doesn't say, and bring out the work boots. Who's got the keys to the tractor? He doesn't give him anything concerned with his function. He gives him everything concerned with who the Father believes him to be. He didn't compare him with the eldest son who's laboured out in the field and say, yeah, and while you were gone, hello, your brothers had to do the work too. He doesn't mention the eldest son. He didn't make the love condition. Well, listen, that's great that you feel that way and now you've sorted yourself out. But hello, don't worry, there's going to be a probation period. The very first thing, he kisses him, brings out the stole, the mark of dignity, puts the ring of favour on his finger, the shoes on his barefooted, dirty, uh, treading through all the dust feet. And he puts it on this boy because what he's saying to him is this is who you are. You aren't your past. You aren't your failures. You aren't your mistakes. And you definitely aren't how others see you. When Jesus told this parable, the whole community was set abuzz. They couldn't believe that this could happen. To this day, there are communities where if someone was to do something like that, you, you've probably seen it in the movie or something, but it still happens. You are dead to me. And yet the Father says, I'm going to give you back something that says about how I see you. Let me say to you this morning, the heavenly Father has that image of you. Have you screwed up? Have you made a mistake? Are you keeping on failing in the same thing? And there's the Father still waiting for you just to come home and He's got the stole of mark of dignity ready. He's got the ring. He never pawned it, never gave it away. It's still there. He's got everything that he needs to give you because He sees you worthy. He sees you of value. He sees you restored. And perhaps most importantly of all, He sees you belonging. Now, I don't know what family you come from. I don't know whether that was the way your family treated you. Probably not. But can I tell you this morning, absolutely Jesus believed that's how God sees you. God sees you like that. God sees you like maybe your family You'd rather forget some parts of it. But can I ask you, can I plead with you? Remember, this is how God sees you. I'll finish with this story. Team can come. There's a famous uh, singer, I think she's passed away now, called Mahalia Jackson. She kind of became famous in the days of, you know, all the 
racial tensions in America. And Dr. Billy Graham, famous preacher, had her sing at one of his great crusades. Deliberately picked her because not only her phenomenal talent, but because she was a person of colour. And so, you know, it was quite controversial that he did what he did. But before she sang her song, he interviewed her. And he said to her, Mahalia Jackson, how do you cope with all the things people throw at you and say at you? How do you cope with the image some people have of you that lowers you? This was her response. She said, Dr. Graham, I believe that God made me and God don't make no junk. Huh? God don't make no junk. Can I say to you this morning, if you're a living, breathing human being, you're made in the image of God. You are not swinging out of a tree. You're not going to nothing. You have the stamp of Almighty God in your heart and soul. There is something inside of you that longs to believe, that wants to be reconnect with the Father who's still waiting at the end of the road, who's still saying, look what I've got for you. Because see, God the Father understands it's in family that our image of ourselves gets built so powerfully. That's why the Scripture says, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's Hebrews 10, 25. Why does it say that? Why? Because it's in family. It's when I get into places and environments like this. I don't know whether you've grown up with church that harangued you and beat you up. That won't happen here. This is the place where we come and Almighty God through the Holy Spirit starts rebuilding things that have been broken down inside of our life. Start saying, this is who I think you are. This is who I believe you are. Let's pray together. Bow your head with me a moment. Heavenly Father, thank You for everyone that's here today. Oh, how we love the sense of Your great love and grace over our life. Lord, how we love that You are with us, that You are around us, that we are valuable to You, so valuable that You did give Your only Son to take our place. All the sins, punishment that should have been ours wiped away by the death of Your Son so that we can walk into a freedom and a joy and a liberty that knows no end. We are so grateful for it, Lord. We're so grateful for it. God, if You never did another thing for our life, we'd be grateful for that, that You come into our life and change us from the inside out. Lord, I pray for anybody here, anyone listening or watching who has never made a, a, a simple step of saying yes to trusting Christ. God, I pray that today You'll help them. They'll say yes to You in their heart and begin to work that out by following You all the days of their life. I'm going to pray for people here in this place that want to say yes to Jesus. Just right where you sit, not going to take long, but just right where you sit, I'm going to pray for you right where you are. It's between you and God. If you're watching this via YouTube channel or listening to the podcast, well, you can say yes where you are. People do it all the time. Literally every week, people are saying yes to Christ. They did it last Sunday morning and night. They'll do it again tonight. I know people will say yes to Christ. But can I tell you, it's not about how many. It's about whether it's you. It's about whether it's you. Jesus stands at the door and knocks and wants to come into your life. I'd love to pray with you. 
It's as simple as you saying yes. And so wherever you are right now, while heads are bowed, eyes are closed, if you would like to say, yes, I want to trust Christ for my life. I want to let Jesus come into my life and really begin something deep and profound inside of me. All I'm going to ask you to do right now is simply slip your hand up and then put it back down again just so I can see it so I know I'm praying for you. Would you do that right now just wherever you are? I don't know you're all here and so I don't want to miss you out if today's the one day of your life where you're going to say yes. If that's you, just slip it up and then put it back down. I'll see it. I'll pray with you. I won't embarrass you. It's not what I'm here for. I want to help you today. Begin a journey with Christ. Is there anybody like that? There is. Just lift it. Thank you. Anyone else? Just wherever you are. Say, that's me today. I'm always glad. So glad. One of the great things of this church, the moments we live for is people saying yes to Christ because we know the profound difference. Thank you. Anyone else wants to join those two people? Thank you in there. Anyone else? Just wherever you are. Say, that's me. Thank you down there. I see you. You might have been raised in church. Maybe you know religion really well. You just don't know Jesus really well. Or maybe this is the first time or very rarely you've ever been to church. We're not offering you church. We're offering you an encounter with Jesus Christ. Is there anyone else before we pray with those people? Just wherever you are, you can wave it. I'll see it. Then we're going to pray together and those four people right where you are and the people that are watching and the people that are listening. I'm going to lead you in the simplest of prayers because Jesus is not complicated. He's simple to receive, simple to know. Would you say this prayer after me? Make it yours. Lord Jesus, thank You for dying for me because I matter to You. I need Your forgiveness. I need Your help. I want You in my life. Thank You, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I believe that if you prayed that minute, I believe that you're born again. You go, how could that be? Well, really? It's that simple. God was not waiting for you to prove something any more than the father waited for the prodigal to prove it. Right now, God brings out the mark of dignity and say, you're his child. He brings out the ring of favour and say, that's who I believe you to be. Put something on your feet so as you walk from here, your life is different. Father, I pray for those people. We all pray for them, God, and we'll keep praying this week that their life will change simply because they said yes to Jesus. The generations that follow them will change because they said yes to Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's give those people a great big hand and say, well done. How cool is that? Come on, that's such a wonderful thing. Such a wonderful thing. Such a wonderful thing. What a beautiful thing it is when anyone says yes to Jesus. If you lifted your hand, maybe you don't have a Bible, go visit out the Connect Hub. They'll give you one there. All you got to do is just simply go up and just uh, raise my hand or I need a Bible. They'll give you one free without compliments. If you don't have a church home, by the way, maybe you're here today, maybe you're already a Christian. You don't know. You say, I don't belong anywhere. I absolutely believe in belonging. Go out there. I'd love to give you this as a gift. It's our book. We just published it. It's a book that I think contains the unchanging heart of Metro Church. 
what it's about. It'll help you, I know, and inspire you. It's not full of rules and regulations. It's full of inspiration and vision. Love to give you that. Just go and grab one at the at the uh, Connect Hub. If you are perhaps didn't raise your hand, wish that you had, can I tell you another way you can do this? Say yes to Jesus. Text yes to 0488-826-392. Don't worry if you don't get the number down right now. Grab one of these slips. They're out there on the wall near the Connect Hub. Take one with our compliments. We get these all through the week. Get them at the oddest hours. People saying yes to Christ. If you want to do it online, you can do it there at yes.metrochurch.org.au. This is all that will happen. I told this to someone just last Sunday who said to me, I, I'm not sure what I believe or how to believe. I've got so many questions. I said, why don't you start by saying yes? This is what happens is the next morning at 7 a.m. Perth time, you'll get on your smartphone one screen, a scripture about your new walk with Christ and a prayer that you can make yours by praying it. And that'll help you. That's what you get every day for 30 days or until you stop it. And uh, it's such a great help for people. Give them another big hand, would you? And all those that are saying yes to Jesus.